when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's efforts to reach out to business and whether some Labour MPs should be deselected. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, political commentator Miranda Green, plus two close observers of the Labour Party, Paul Mason and John McTernan. Thank you all for joining. So the optics of Brexit are continuing to shift around as Theresa May's government is struggling to find its feet after the election humiliation. But the debate is not really about whether Brexit will happen or not, but whether the UK will have a close or far away relationship with the EU on the other side. In particular, businesses are finding their voice and are speaking out about the transition period, that's the time between membership and departure. They want a close relationship with the EU in that period and on Friday, the great and good of Britain's businesses gathered at a country house in Kent to discuss what all this means. So, George Parker, what was the significance of the meeting on Friday? Theresa Mays had some dinners with business leaders before, but this was a little bit different. You say she had these dinners before, and I think that's the point, that she had minimal contact with business after her election as Tory leader in 2016, up until the general election. When Rula Halaf, our deputy editor, and I interviewed Theresa May, we asked about this, and she referenced a dinner that she'd had with business leaders last July, a year ago, as evidence of her engagement with business. And that is a completely different scenario to the one that business used to enjoy with David Cameron, where there was more or less an open door into number 10 if you were a chief executive, if you had a big issue to raise. And business was being kept away from Theresa May by her co-chiefs of staff, the famous Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, who also kept other ministers away. And it was all part of keeping Theresa May away from people who might influence her other than the chiefs of staff. So the significance of this meeting is the fact that the government is speaking to business at a very high level about the issue they care about more than anything else, which is Brexit. Miranda Green, I guess the issue is that that cosiness David Cameron had with business was seen as a good thing from business point of view. But Theresa May wanted to try and appease this populist appetite following Brexit and this idea that politicians and businesses were working too closely together and give some distance there. So you can understand that. But on the other hand, business isn't just like an interest group. It is the economy and that's what drives the country. So she does have a balance to strike there. No, quite right. And actually, it's a very crude interpretation of what a government should do to say that it should keep people at arm's length in case you might listen to their concerns. <laughs> you know, you'd need to be listening to the concerns of business because they're the employers. And in fact, the Brexit vote, I think, is a significant part of this because most big businesses, all the employers' organisations were on the side of Remain. And of course, May, having become PM, declared herself as Madame Brexit and surrounded herself with people of a similar viewpoint. And I think that's been part of the schism with business. Of course, now... Once the Brexit clock is ticking and we've triggered Article 50 and we're speeding towards the exit, 
Business has got much more involved and they've realised since the election humiliation that they really have to have business on board explaining its needs. So this week, actually for the last sort of 10 days or so, you've seen, for example, the CBI, the largest employers organisation, becoming extremely vocal about what it needs from Brexit, principally this long transition period so that there's not a sudden set of changes and a sudden set of abandoning of European regulations and abandoning of relationships built up over decades with continental partners. Your point, Seb, is important as well, that it's true that part of the rebranding of the Conservative Party under Theresa May was, as you were suggesting, that she wanted to put distance between herself and business. There was a big focus on excessive executive pay, on corporate irregularities in the City of London. And business came to view the relationship with Number 10. It was almost an abusive relationship that business seemed to be almost there for Theresa May to use it as a way to highlight her connection to working class voters. And I have to say, to a certain extent, that was successful. We have to remember the Conservative Party did win 42% of the vote and they did reach into areas which they never previously had reached into. But the effect of it, the long-term effect of it, was that there was a huge gap, as we were just saying, between business and the government which grew up. And historically, it's quite an odd thing for the Conservative Party, which is the natural body that represents enterprise and wealth creation and that sort of thing, whereas Labour has a much more chequered past with business. You know, under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, it had a close relationship with business, but not under Jeremy Corbyn. So business has found itself in this quite odd situation, George, where nobody in politics really wanted to speak to them. No, exactly. And of course, they brought a lot of it on themselves. And there has been excessive corporate behaviour and greed in the boardroom. And I think business has had to learn that lesson. But I think what we've seen this week is the Conservative Party getting back to basics. In the immediate aftermath and the shock of the election, there were people scrabbling around wondering whether they should be a bit more like Labour. And what we've seen this week is the Conservative Party going back to basics, not just in this high-level engagement with the business community, but on Wednesday, Theresa May sounding like a Conservative Prime Minister who actually believed in Conservative economic policies, such as sound fiscal management. And the Conservative Party, frankly, feels a lot more comfortable with Theresa May when she's in this mode than the mode before the election. I'm not sure the soul-searching is totally over, but I think you're absolutely right, George. And if they wind up with a position where they actually engage with business, but also bear down on some of these corporate excesses like executive pay, then they actually have a good chance of having everyone's ear and having some sort of unified strategy for Brexit. But clearly also other people within the Conservative Party, those who favour a softer exit from the EU will be very pleased that business is developing more of a relationship with Number 10 now. This is the real significance, the timing of this meeting, Miranda. It's all about the Brexit debate. And as I said, it's all changing a lot, although practically nothing is actually altered with the government strategy, the mood music, the conversation, whatever you want to say. It's all talking about some kind of softer relationship. And people are focusing on transition, which is what happens the day that we leave, the sort of end of March 2019, before you have that final exit from the single market and the customs. You know, we heard it from the CBI this week that they want indefinite single market customs union membership and I'm sure that's what Calvin Fairburn, the head of the CBI, put to David Davis at evening on Friday. But that's not really sustainable politically, is it? Because you will open this can of worms of not fulfilling the will of the people and Brexit not meaning Brexit if you're going to be in the single market and the customs union indefinitely. So there's got to be a sort of cut-off point there. And this is, again, the tightrope May's got to walk. She does have exactly that tightrope to walk. But I think a lot of what you've asserted there is up for debate, actually. So, for example, if you end up with a transition after the end of the Article 52-year process, and actually that transition starts to work quite well, and if you see the backdrop of the UK economy not looking as healthy as it was even a year ago when the Brexit vote was held, 
you might actually start to get a change in mood. So I agree with you. I mean, ever since June the 23rd, 2016, you and I Seb, have been talking about when will the cries of betrayal start from the hard Brexiters. And it's true, that's still a concern for May. But actually, the momentum might be on the other side of the argument now. Yeah, I think the political and economic tide is moving very strongly at the moment in favour of a softer kind of Brexit. And I think the moment of truth for Theresa May will come in October. There are two key events in October. There's the Tory party conference, where this will be front and centre of the debate. And then three weeks later, there'll be a European summit in Brussels, where Theresa May will have to give an indication of where she wants to go with a future relationship, assuming that some of the hard work's been done on the divorce settlement in the meantime. And that's going to be a big moment. And frankly, there are people in the business community like the CBI, and there are people in the Treasury who would like this transition period to be as long as it possibly can be. And, and that could include permanently. Yeah. Though, of course, the Treasury wouldn't say that. But they also say once we're in the transition period, we need to be reassured that the downside of leaving this transitional arrangement, for example, being in the customs union, is more than offset by the advantages we can derive from having our own trade policy and Liam Fox having this plethora of excellent trade deals with the rest of the world. Now, that, of course, as you say, Seb, is the thing that will really get the Eurosceptics worried because they want to see this all done and dusted, the new arrangements in place before the next election in 2022. I think there are some people on the anti-Brexit side who would like to see the transition arrangements, as you say, open-ended and possibly lasting after 2022. And, of course, if that happens public opinion can shift and the political opinion can turn. And of course, Liam Fox is under serious pressure on that question that you raised, George, not least this week, because the EU has concluded a trade agreement with Japan. So there's a visible reminder of the clout of the EU, of countries banding together to strike deals like this. Meanwhile, the prospects for the UK, it's extremely unclear what Liam Fox's plans are to establish this so-called global Britain. There is a slight logical problem, though, with having an indefinite or long, long transition period, because people argue that if you're in the EA option for Brexit, as you might call it, it's actually arguably the worst of both worlds because we're essentially tied to the EU paying all that money in but we have no say in what happens we don't have any representation and your hands are bound with those new opportunities you're talking about so from the Eurosceptic point of view you can understand why they want that to be a finite thing and then business is looking for certainty and if they have the certainty of a date then at least they can work towards that yeah I think that's probably right I think most people are still working on the assumption this will all be wrapped up by 2022. And as you said, there is the problem, you end up in the worst of all worlds. I think one thing business is quite anxious about is we don't have two transitions. This is the point the CBI made, that when we leave the EU in March 2019, that we don't move to some halfway house where we maybe are associate members of the customs union or have some sort of arm's length relation with the single market. That's why they want us to remain part of those things until we make the final switch to the new future trade agreement. The problem is that the future trade agreement could take more than three years to negotiate. And you hear plenty of people in Brussels say that it could take four or five years. And that timetable, as you say, is completely unacceptable to many Brexiteers. There's also, Seb, the point you raised about the political fix that May herself is in, because she, of course, in January made this very hardline speech at Lancaster House, which has become the kind of ur text for what does Brexit means Brexit mean. Even though there was actually not that much in it, all it said was we're leaving the single market eventually we are going to probably leave the customs union and we're going to leave the ecj jurisdiction that was it really 
Absolutely. But there are now calls for reinterpretation of that speech or some sort of rowing back from that speech, which puts her in a very difficult situation. And it's be a really bad idea if we took our eyes off what the Labour Party is up to at the moment on this. For example, Keir Starmer, who's their Brexit spokesman, has been starting to make noises about saying, well, we are going to have to accept some sort of ECJ oversight. That's a slightly new position for the Labour Party, actually, which, of course, famously went to the country in the election and made gains of seats on a manifesto, unfortunately, which talked about leaving the EU. I think there's an interesting interpretation to Labour's new message on the ECJ here, because they're now saying the regulatory bodies, things like Euratom, the pharma, aviation, all those kind of things, those are tribunal dispute bodies, essentially, which are just part of parcel of modern day business. Now, if you take the hardest interpretation of Mrs. May's Lancaster House speech, that means you can't be in any of those regulatory bodies. And that really worries business, I think. And the question is, can she reinterpret that to say that you won't have the ECJ as some kind of supernatural court you can go to appeal with your human rights concerns, but it will still have some jurisdiction over those regulatory bodies? Do you think that's in any way acceptable to the Conservative Party, George? Well, I was speaking to a minister in the government about this and they were saying you have to apply the dog and duck test here. When people were voting for Brexit, were they voting so there'd be a complete rupture with backstop ECJ powers at over 34 regulatory agencies? Probably not. So look, I think common sense has got to have to prevail here. I think that people have got to move off their ideological fixations for the sake of the country's economy. And the fact is that remaining parties' regulatory agencies gives business continuity uncertainty. And it saves Britain the enormous expense of trying to recreate these agencies at a national level when we don't have the regulatory expertise to do it. It makes common sense. And we can try and dress it up and we can have, you know, bilateral court resolution mechanisms or whatever. But the European Union will just say, tough, we've got our mechanism. It's called the ECJ. Live with it. Oh, some would say at least it's our red tape, not their tape, Miranda. Absolutely. And also you might end up with a situation, this is a kind of good outcome potentially, where a compromise that works for the Labour benches is also a compromise that works in some way for the Tory party. And you may get an outbreak of common sense, as George describes it. It's still entirely possible that none of that will happen and that they'll both sides of the House of Commons will end up tying themselves in knots and being very divided on this issue. And just finally, George, to what extent do we think the Prime Minister's thinking has actually changed? Because see, Nick Timothy, her former chief of staff, took this very hardline interpretation of the Brexit vote, which is basically out of everything, clean break and what have you. Now that he's gone and there's different people advising the Prime Minister, she's appointed a new Director of Communications, Robbie Gibb from the BBC this week. Is there any sense there's a shift there or is it all just people in the Cabinet who are using the vacuum to try and put their arguments out there? Well, I think the truth is that Theresa May is a much weaker figure and she's going to have to listen to different advice. I think that's the key thing. I mean, she was being shielded from unwelcome advice about Brexit in the year before the election. And we know that the British ambassador in Brussels was effectively sacked because he brought unwelcome news. We know that Philip Hammond found it very difficult to have a meeting with Theresa May. We know that negative or unhelpful briefings were removed from the red box by the chiefs of staff. So the truth is that actually Theresa May was being cut off from the expert advice she needs to make these decisions. So not only is she now probably starting to receive for the first time some hard truths about Brexit, but she's in a much weaker position to resist those bits of advice as well. So I think there has been a fundamental change on June the 8th. 
At least she's receiving the advice now, Miranda. It's just a shame it's almost a year since the vote. Well, absolutely. And so we'll see whether she's able to slightly change her own way of operating in this shaky leadership role, very different to the one that she had before the election result. For example, those ministers in the coalition years who worked with her in the Home Office, even if they disagreed with her, they had a lot of respect for the way she actually came to decisions because she used to go through the detail, take all the advice and then come to a view. If this is, in a sense, the first time she's actually being given all of that input as Prime Minister on the most important issue of our age, perhaps she might come to some slightly different conclusions. That's a hope, though. It's it's not a certainty. Labour's impressive performance in the general election campaign surprised many political observers, but there's one man who has been very happy to take all the credit. All of Jeremy Corbyn's internal critics in the party thought he was taking it to electoral ruin, and now they've been proven wrong. But if it isn't true, and Labour is now on course for going into government, is it time for everyone to rally round him and keep their criticisms to themselves? And for those who are unwilling to, should they be deselected or move on from politics? This week there are some signs that some of Mr Corbyn's supporters in Labour are moving to oust those MPs who don't appear to be on his side. John McTurney, this is what is described as deselection, this idea that constituency Labour parties might move to deselect MPs who are not, say, on board or fair with Jeremy Corbyn. We've seen Luciana Berger, who's an MP in Liverpool, who has been warned that this might be on the horizon for her. Is this a credible thing that's going to happen and is it a good or a bad thing? I think it's a very bad thing if people are threatening MPs who have just submitted themselves to mandatory reselection through the general election in the ballot box. We've got some stunning majorities across the country, from Peter Kyle in Hove to Luciana Berger up in Liverpool, Wavertree. And to suggest that there should now be some kind of thought crime prosecution and that people should be weeded out. We need 60 more seats at least for the Labour Party at the next election, which for me can't come soon enough. I want to see Jeremy Corbyn in number 10, but I want him to be in number 10 with Luciana Berger and Karen Buck and West Streeting and MPs of all shades of opinion in the party sitting behind him on the back bench, sitting beside him on the front bench. Well, Paul Mason, there is a question about why this discussion is happening now. If Labour hadn't done as well in the election, there might be a very different conversation going on about the party's future. But the fact is, it's run a good election campaign. A lot of its MPs ran very good local campaigns. So why is there any talk of reselecting, deselecting, or what have you? Well, I'd settle for simply selecting because we have had a mass influx of people into our party. I think it's changed the character of the party. Many young and many professional people simply cannot understand why they don't get a say in picking who is going to represent them as an MP. So necessarily because of the snap election, we've had a whole set of people selected by a three-person committee. I would like to see before the next election, at least, at the very least, everybody gets a chance to actually pick the candidate in a seat where we don't have an MP at the moment. So just to select new candidates. On top of that, there is a rule that says that anybody in in a local party can try and get what is called a trigger ballot before the next election to subject their sitting MP to reselection. And my list would not be as long as the one that was apparently circulated in the northeast of England. But my criteria would not be people who have rebelled or have been criticised Corbyn. Absolutely not. But it's anybody who looks like they won't support a Labour government. 
Now, before the last election, we had at least one person going to the election saying they wouldn't support a Labour government. My own MP in Vauxhall, Kate Hoy, has been an excellent MP, but I'm afraid her views simply do not represent the vast majority of either the party or the electorate who voted for her. So we have to give people the right to say, Lou, you're not representing us whether you've been elected as part of a big search for a left-wing Labour Party or not. So it's on that basis that I would want to see the right to select your MP re-established inside the party. I think that's a perverse call from Paul Mason. If there'd been this kind of loyalty test to drive out MPs who they suspect as loyalty to a Labour government in the 90s, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell wouldn't be MPs. I think we have to accept that the Labour Party is a broad church or it is nothing. It has to contain a broad span of opinion. And I trust Paul's motives. I don't trust the motives of the people that he's hanging out with. I don't think the people who are attacking Luciana for thought crimes subscribes the notion of a broad Labour Party, and I don't think the picking off of individual MPs is a good idea either. Kate Hoey is a great constituent MP. She's allowed to have her views on the European Union and Brexit. I believe they're wrong. There are odds with their constituents. There are odds with London. But the great thing about MPs is that they are characters, they're individuals, and they have their own view. And I think that's what the country votes for when they choose people. And it's dangerous ground to go and say we can pick the right ones, the pure ones, the not so pure ones. We heard from Ian Levy this week, Paul, who is Jeremy Corbyn's election coordinator, and he said that there is actually some people who maybe shouldn't be representing Labour in Parliament, that maybe it is too broad a church. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, look, no, we have a wider problem in British politics that centrism is not well represented right now. Now, I'm not a centrist. I'm a radical social democrat of the left. But if I was, I'd be feeling pretty upset because the Liberal Democrats bombed at the election. And it's still not clear to me why they managed to do that, because there was a big constituency for the ideas of a second referendum and fighting Brexit and all the things they want to do. So the background to this is that it may be that some people in our party are on the sort of traditional Blairite wing of it, not the sort of traditional right wing of it, but the Blairite wing. We know there have been discussions about forming a new party. Various journalists who are allied to them continually call on them to form a new party. No, I'm quite happy for them to do that. If they want to do it, it'll be sad to leave them. We'll have to form some kind of an electoral alliance with them, I think, as we did with the Greens, etc. But what I don't want to do is have the next election and then they form the new party afterwards. That's what I don't want to do. And therefore, I don't want a loyalty oath. I just want to be clear from people about whether they support the idea of a Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn with a left-wing manifesto that's going to reverse corporate control of Britain and probably have a few people who read the Financial Times crying into their soup. You know, if they don't support it, don't stand on the next manifesto, stand on somebody else's manifesto, would be my advice to them. We have a new party in British politics, it's Corbyn's Labour Party, and in due course we'll have another new one, which is the post-Corbyn Labour Party. And the notion that centrism is underrepresented in British politics is wrong. It's massively represented in the House of Commons. The issue for Jeremy Corbyn for momentum for Paul Mason is to accept that centrism is a valid stream of thought within the Labour Party. It needs to be represented too because people like me have loyalty to the Labour Party, massive experience and great insights to bring to bear in the project of a Labour government that changes the country and not in having slogans that are unimplementable and lead to inevitable failure.
let's take the example. There is a Labour commitment to scrap tuition fees. Right now, the Blairite wing of Labour is trying to overturn that commitment for some reason. Now, I'm quite happy with that. They can bring their resolutions to conference. They can maintain their belief that it's wrong even after it gets repassed in the manifesto. What I don't want to see them do is stand up alongside the Tories and Lib Dems after the next election and vote down the ending of tuition fees. Because that would be, let's use the word, that would be a betrayal. That would be the equivalent of not striking during the miners' strike. And we are not going to have that. We've had too much of it in the Labour movement. And so, yes, absolutely, I would invite anybody who intends to do that to go away and form a party like Mr Macron has done of the centre. Paul, this is like science fiction. It's like a Philip K. Dick story. This is thought crimes of the future. This expelling people who may commit a thought crime now and a crime in the future. It is ridiculous. At a time when the Labour Party is genuinely one short step from forming a government, one short step from reversing Brexit, one short step from doing so many things, from housing through to tuition fees, to now turn inward and try to tear the Labour Party unity apart in this pursuit. I think that's wrong. I know that you don't subscribe to the long list that people have circulated. I think the time is for people like you and for me to stand and say, if the Labour Party can't contain John McTurnan and Paul Mason, it cannot stand and it cannot win a government. That's where I stand at the moment. I think that's where most playwrights actually are, most new Labour people, most people in the old right of the Labour Party. And I hope that's true, John. I'm certain that it can contain both of us. And I really hope that it can contain an even wider bunch of people. I would like to see the Green Party affiliate to Labour. That's too far for me. (laughs) (laughs) However, there is another issue, and that is lots of young people and lots of professional people. You know, I've just been standing in the queue at a coffee bar. At the end of the queue, when you get to the front, they ask, do you want skim milk, full milk? Do you want marshmallows on top? And that young generation are quite used to the idea that if you invest in something, you see you're paying 10, 20, whatever it is, pound a month to be a member of the Labour Party, you kind of want some say in it. And I'd be critical here of the whole party's culture. You see, I think there's another part of this. I'd like to see Corbyn and the leadership put all the policies in the manifesto up for voting at the conference because we have this arcane thing in the Labour Party called the Clause 5 meeting where they agree the manifesto. Fair enough, that's where that was done. I think we should all have a say in what is our position on Brexit, what is our position on student tuition fees. I think many people would feel more ownership of the manifesto if they had a full opportunity to vote on it. I'm just in favour of a lot more democracy in the party. And finally, John, does Paul not have a point there that obviously the Labour Party is the biggest political party in Western Europe at the moment? It's had all these new members. A lot of them have been brought in for what Jeremy Corbyn is offering. Shouldn't they have some way of being involved that if the party has now got this much bigger membership, social media, momentum, all these things have very much changed what Labour's about in recent years? Maybe it's time to rethink about how its policies and its politicians are chosen. But see, like Paul, I welcome the new members and I welcome the energy. And I noticed the effect of that in seats across the country, in the new members who others dismissed in the past as being only wanting to be clicktivists. I've worked with them in my own constituency. I've worked with them in other constituencies. People are out there on the doorstep, out there delivering leaflets, out there engaging in community campaigns. And I think where I want to see Labour over the next period is the leadership acting like the government in waiting and the party ceaselessly campaigning. 
People should be in Hastings every weekend. People should be in the seats that we need for the next big push. And that's why I think this focus on current MPs and whether they should stand or not stand, whether they should be reselected, is a dangerous diversion of energy. Yes, people want to get more involved. Perhaps there should be a ballot of the whole manifesto of all the membership, the way Blair did in the 90s. Perhaps there are other ways that we can involve people. But I think that the notion that Labour Party membership is a one-way thing and that you buy it so you get to choose your MP... That, that's one dimensional. I think people are really interested in community campaigning, changing their communities. The good MPs harness that energy between elections as well as at elections, and the good candidates do the same thing, and I want to see more of that. Well, look, there's little to disagree with that. I'm actually in favour of much more participatory democracy, full stop, both in parties and in governments. Exactly, let's have online ballots over policies. But if we're going to have online ballots over policies, let's have one member, one vote for the local MP. We all recognise Labour's a coalition. It's an alliance of different types of left and centrist thinking. But the missing bit of it right now that's going to turn off these 150, 200,000 people who've come in in the last two years is if they never get a say in anything. Because in their work life and in their life as consumers, they just don't get that experience. And they're not going to stick with us unless we give them more of a modern experience of control. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. And thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.